5. Tonight we'll be covering the material from chapters 40 and 41 in the complete green letters. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we do uh, come this evening with thanksgiving and praise. We know, Father, that you are an awesome, mighty God, sovereign in everything. Everything belongs to you, and nothing happens that you're not aware of. With that in mind, we recognize that uh, uh, we need your Spirit's enlightenment and understanding uh, given to us tonight as we look at uh, not only these um, things that are written down by a man, but uh, how they reflect the teaching of your Word. And Lord, that uh, we might be able to do so in such a way that if we are not understanding, it'll become clear to us. And uh, if we're not living the way you've called us to live, that you would open our eyes to exactly what needs to change by your grace uh, that we can do it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, in chapter 40, the principles of reckoning. He starts out with the purpose of these books, because in the complete letters, there's actually five books given. And he specifically cites the green letters, which is, Uh, one of the books that ultimately was renamed into the Principles of Spiritual Growth, which I believe might have been the first book of the five in the complete green letters. But the purpose of these books is to set forth the truths of identification as well as some basic principles by which God brings us into their reality. Um, One of the things that we see as we, the more we walk with the Lord is like any discipline, the more you do it, the more you understand how it works, and the more when the question comes up, the more you're prepared to have the answer. Uh, For example, if you were to bring Chuck to the roof and start asking him questions about roofing, um, he's done so many of them that he would be able to give you answers like that. They would not be a difficulty for him Uh, When you run into difficulties, that's where, okay, maybe there's less experience, less understanding, but it's not as though it couldn't be done. It just means that he needs a little bit more. But that would be more than what most of us have because most of us have not done the amount of roofs uh, that uh, Chuck has done. Same thing would be true of auto mechanics. If uh, something's wrong with the car, you go over and ask Dave, and he listens to it for a few minutes, and starts giving you a list of things that might be the problem, uh, and then throws his little scanner on there and says, oh yeah, this is the problem, and you're going, what's that? Uh, (laughs) um, Because he's done it for so many years, he understands the reality and all of the principles that are involved, and therefore, uh, in a spiritual sense, that's what these books are designed to do. So, we start out with the definition of principles, And uh, he refers to Webster's Dictionary. Now, one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do is whenever you're looking up words, look at older dictionaries, okay? And, And the reason is, is newer dictionaries, they have changed the meanings of a lot of things to match the cultural approved understanding of that. And I'm not just talking about the transgender issue, um, did you know that the word unicorn is mentioned, it's either nine or 19 times in the Bible? And yeah, seriously, yeah. And um, the unicorn 
If you look it up in the dictionary, it is a mythical animal, a horse with a horn protruding from its forehead. And uh, since God refers to the unicorn several times, therefore, since it's a mythical animal, um, obviously God is lying. Until you go back to before, I think, 1964, the Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary, you find out that the word unicorn uh, deals with the one-horned rhinoceros. And it explains that the two-horned rhinoceros, the ones that we're most familiar with, is uh, called something else that deals with the concept of two horns instead of one horn. And so when the Bible was transla or, uh, yeah, translated from Greek or whatever into English, Hebrew uh, into English, um, the word unicorn was an understood concept of a one-horned rhinoceros. Where nowadays the understood of unicorn is a mythical beast that never did and never has or will exist. So whenever you're looking at dictionaries, be sure to you know, look at some of the older ones because uh, the newer ones don't do us any favors, okay? So uh, Webster's Dictionary, a law of nature or the method by which a thing operates, okay? Uh, when we lived in Adam, the law that we operated by was sinful, yeah. Everything was oriented towards self uh, pleasure, uh, meeting, uh, overly meeting our needs, uh, no concern for others, etc. So that's a principle. Notice the how of reckoning is based on principles. God brings us into the reality of our identification on the basis of three principles. The principle of knowledge, you have to know the scriptural truths. Second, the principle of faith, you have to reckon or believe the scriptural truths known. And again, that belief is not just an uh, intellectual assent. It is trust. And then uh, third, uh, the principle of time. You have to yield to his lifetime process for growth in the scriptural truths known and reckoned on. I am presently 42 years old in the Lord. I have learned some things about walking with God in the last couple of years that I kind of wish I had learned when I was a lot younger in the Lord. But see, that's the issue. It is a process of growth, and it continues throughout life. Uh, for all too many Christian people, we grow to a certain point, and we kind of get happy with that plateau. And God does things to kind of stir that up and and get us going again, but um, at least in the normal take a look at uh, the life, it doesn't seem as though some uh, get stirred up too much about it. But we have to be committed to uh, or yield to his lifetime process for growth in the scriptural truths known and reckoned on. So the truth of our identification are what God has revealed in his word about what is truth about us because of our identification with Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, he in the book, he basically talks about the death, burial, and resurrection. Um, let me explain why I threw in his life. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, okay, 
Uh, what makes him Lord? Well, yeah, his person, but his life was about proving who he was. He was about showing people what God is like because being God, he was doing what God wanted done. And so with that in mind, he had to be God and had to live the perfect life in order to be the sacrificial lamb that would die, be buried, and then raise again and be exalted. Uh, so uh, because of our identification with Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection through faith, at which point the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ makes those truths uh, true as seen by God and therefore the reality of our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Romans 6. And let's look at a couple of things here. What should we say then, starting in verse 1? Should we continue in sin? I know you'll catch up in a minute. Uh, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who, are, uh, who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware, or do you not know, the uh, New King James, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, some think that this is water baptism. This is actually spiritual baptism. Water baptism is a picture of what God has already done. Uh, we are baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ, and we are sealed there until the day of redemption. In so being baptized by the Spirit, we are associated with what is true about Jesus. Jesus died, we died. He was buried, we were buried. He was raised again, we were raised again. He was raised again to live unto God. We were raised again not to go to heaven, but to live unto God. Yes, heaven ultimately is the layover that we're going to be, participate in, but that's not why we were saved, so we go to heaven, <clears throat> okay? So when God looks at us, he sees us as in Christ, and therefore we were baptized into Christ's death, verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Now notice that we too may walk in newness of life. <clears throat> now why do I say that? Well, because we're going to see as we go along here, there are all kinds of little obstacles and things that happen that we struggle sometimes in walking in that newness of life. That is part of the uh, pilgrimage, if you will. It's not unusual. Okay, verse... Uh, in the new way of life, verse, verse 5, For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims, now if we died with Christ, we believe uh, that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too 
reckon or consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So how does God see us if we're in Christ? He sees us as the old has died. We've been buried with Christ. We have been raised again. We are new creatures. And there are all kinds of things in the Bible uh, that says what's true about us because we're in Christ. If you'd like a list, a good place to start would be Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Most of them are going to be in chapter 1, but there's some in 2 and a couple in 3. And then Colossians, because it's a sister letter, if you will, uh, you'll find a few in there also. Um, Let me give you a a couple from um, Ephesians chapter 1. Number one, uh, we are called saints in Christ. The word saint doesn't mean that you're holy and perfect and all that kind of stuff. It means you are a separated one, one who has been separated from the world by God for his purpose. And we'll talk a little bit about his purpose as we go along. Uh, It also says that you are faithful in Christ. Now, faithfulness is something that most of us would not lay claims to because we realize how often we fail. But he sees us in Christ. Was Christ faithful to all that he was supposed to do? And the answer would be a resounding, yeah, there we go. And so because we're in Christ, he sees us as faithful. Now, it's not that God is wearing rose-colored glasses and sees something that isn't true. He has imputed Christ's perfect life and his righteousness to our account. So he's no longer looking at us as God the judge. Now he looks at us as father. The judgment's been dealt with, and as father, okay, where you're unfaithful, we're going to be working on that. Okay? Uh, So it's not as though he's missing something. He's saying, I'm giving you credit for what Christ has done. In verse 6, it says, well, in verse 4, it says that we're chosen uh, before the foundations of the world in Christ. Uh, In verse 6, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, whereby he has made us accepted in the beloved. I don't know about you, but for I don't know how many years in my Christian life, I'm always worried about, oh man, I did it again. God probably is angry with me. He's upset. I'm not accepted. And the reality is, is I always was. And I didn't have to worry about him being angry with me because according to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's already been dealt with. That's why in 1 John 1.9, if we agree with God... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because it's already been dealt with. So that's when, when, when we talk about our, uh, the truths of our identification, we're talking about because of what God has done in saving us, we are now seen in Christ and the things that are true about him are true about us. No, we are not God, but God lives in us, both the Spirit, and the Son, and the Father. Hmm, I'm going to have to look that one up. Okay, so let's uh, continue on here. 
Uh, reckon, the word reckon, to regard as being or to count as true. In chapter 6, verse 11, it says, we count on the truth that is made known to us. We exercise faith by resting in the facts. That's not what it says. That's what the book says. Let me read verse 11. So uh, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the things I would like to make uh, mention of in uh, chapter uh, six here is it says, we believe we shall also be raised with him. Everybody looks at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the concept of rapture, resurrection, glorification, that kind of stuff. I want you to understand something, that the resurrection applies to our lives today just as much as someday when, if we pass from this world, our bodies will be raised, okay? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead exists in us and is um, can be appropriated to live the life that God wants us to live. And again, we'll cover that a little bit more. But that's the concept of living with him. It's not talking about someday, though that would be included. It's talking about right here, right now. So the pattern of spiritual development. As lost, convicted sinners, we reckon the revealed truth about a Savior who died on the cross to redeem us and receive him as our personal Savior. Now notice, how else is the word reckon used here? As lost, convicted sinners, we reckon the revealed truth about a Savior who died on the cross to redeem us and receive him as our personal Savior. What's another word that we use there? How about believe? <laughs> yeah, that one too. Uh, yeah, we believe the revealed truth about a Savior who died on the cross to redeem us and receive him as our personal Savior. Again, we're not talking about intellectual ascent. We're talking about trust, okay? So reckoning is trusting, believing what God has said. We're usually excited for a time in that revelation. But in time, we neglect the source of all true life and service, the uh, written and the living word. We normally return to enslaving influences, sin, self, law, and the world, which brings failure in life and service. This is the kind of life you would expect from babes in Christ. Now, when I first got saved, I was going to engineering school. Uh, I was in the ROTC, Air Force, and I was hoping to be a pilot and um, everything was good other than because life wasn't that good. Uh, I was struggling with some of my classes. And then I, I get saved. And man, I tell you what, I wanted everyone to know. Um, in fact, a couple years later, when I brought my wife home to uh, introduce her to the family before we were married, one of my sisters said, Wow, you've really mellowed him out. Last time he was here, he was sending all of us to hell. Obviously, I wasn't sending anybody to hell. I was giving the gospel, warning them of hell, because that's where they're probably all going to be going if something doesn't change, <laughs> okay? But um, very excited about the Lord. When I'm in uh, engineering school, anytime I had an opportunity, I'm sharing Christ with someone. Uh, I went back to the previous uh, school that I had been to, and um, people wondering where I was while well, I transferred over to UConn, so on and so on and so forth. 
and started telling them about Jesus because that's what it was all about. So much so that I barely got through that semester with passing grades. <laughs> um, and the next semester I was in Bible college. There's a reason for all of that. But uh, whole, whole point being was, you know, it wasn't long after that that I started falling back into the old habits. Um, thought patterns, uh, activities. In fact, some of those activities I didn't give up for many years after I was saved because of my uh, immaturity in understanding truths about who God had made me. It goes on the next paragraph. Finally, we are prepared to see something new and wonderful concerning the truths concerning our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin to see freedom from the guilt and the penalty of sin. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. As well as freedom from the power and domination of the principle of sin. Romans 8.2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus delivers me, frees me from the law of sin and death. And, and in order to really grasp the concept of verse 2, you have to live through the frustration of Romans 7. Things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. Things that I hate, those are the things I do. And, you know, if you're immature and you're reading that chapter, uh, he goes on to say, so when I sin, it's not me. It's sin that dwells in me. It's kind of like, perfect. I always have someone to blame. It's not me, it's sin, you know. Well, you start to understand the concepts there. In this body, there is a law of sin, and it goes on to say, uh, called a law of sin and death. And as a new creature, I want to do what God wants me to do. But I don't have the power in and of myself to overcome that law of sin and death. That's why I need the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And we'll explain that a little bit more as we go along. But uh, he, he, in fact, he resigns himself in chapter 7. So then, with my mind, I'll serve the law of God. And with my flesh, the law of sin. As long as I'm in this body, that battle is going on. And he recognizes that there's going to be failures along the way. And that's why Romans 8.1 follows that. You don't got to worry about condemnation because you're in Christ. Okay, but chapter uh, verse two starts giving us where the victory is found. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that frees me from the law of sin. In other words, by the grace of God, the power of the spirit, I can actually be an overcomer when that battle comes along. It's possible. Okay, so um, we start to see those things. Uh, and that you can see is... Uh, there's growth and maturity in Christ. Uh, babes in Christ don't get that, okay? Uh, I remember when I uh, went to candidate school to go to the mission field, this would have been 96, no, no, that would have been 93. Wow, that's terrible. Four and a half years of deputation. <laughs> um, uh, 93-ish, somewhere in there. And um, they asked me, so where do you think you find most of your life? Romans chapter 7 or Romans chapter 8? And I could 
boldly say, oh yeah, I'm still stuck in Romans chapter seven. Okay, because I understood the concepts then. I understood the concepts. I did not grasp with measure all that was uh, being said. Uh, like before, excitement, when you get to know these identification truths, excitement produces a desire to share these new truths with others that have not proceeded through the first paragraph yet and are surprised that they are unreceptive, maybe even antagonistic to these truths. I can tell you that as a pastor, there have been many times when it's been very frustrating to deal with people because people are at different places in their spiritual walk. And sometimes you expect or want them to grasp what you got and they're thinking, this guy is loony. He might even be a false teacher, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Uh, but uh, that's what's happening here. So in frustration, we become inconsistent in our reckoning and learn more on our uh, lean more on our experience than the source of the abundant life we had been receiving and begin to suffer defeat. Uh, frustration discouragement, these kinds of things, even for a pastor, will bring about old habits of thinking, and then before you know it, defeat in areas where we used to struggle before, maybe found some victory, uh, but here we are again type thing. Um, notice wavering in hope and expectation of freedom, confidence wanes and failure rises again, bringing discouragement. I remember several years back, I had come to the place where some revelations came to my mind as far as uh, what kind of a father I had been. Uh, my son Daniel likes to, well, he was talking to mom one time and he goes, you know, we know dad loves us, but if we mess up, he'll kill us. It probably saved a couple of my wonderfully handsome, strong, brave, courageous foolish sons, probably saved them from some of the hassles that they would have gone through because they knew that dad would kill them after everybody else did, you know, that kind of a thing. But, you know, my kind of parenting, though it may have saved them from some of their foolishness, it did not save them from all of their foolishness. Their foolishness was going to come out because as a tyrant, uh, you don't get to the heart of the issue all the time. And if you don't get to the heart of the issue, the heart will show itself. And so I come to this uh, understanding of some of the difficulties uh, that they brought on themselves by making choices that they were taught not to do, but again, didn't reach the heart. Um, and um, I became very, very discouraged, even to the point of depression. Now, depression is basically anger turned inward, okay? And uh, because I am very, very intelligent, anytime my wife tried to encourage me, I always had the answers that she wasn't thinking about as far as responding to those things, proving that everything that she was saying to encourage me was wrong. Now, that might say, sound arrogant, and I was purposely trying to do that, because when a person is struggling with discouragement, very often a Bible verse or something is not going to help. There has to be a change in their thinking. 
And uh, I would say that I probably went through this for a period of time where I was looking at life as though I am just going to be existing. I will never fulfill the purposes of God in my life. I'm just going to exist until I die. I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and everything is going to burn up. And that's where I lived for a couple of years. Now, I continued to minister, continued to read my Bible and all that kind of stuff. But mentally, I was in another world. And uh, it was scriptural truth that kind of brought me out of it. Uh, First of all, what could I do about yesterday? Not a thing. So I could continue to live in that discouragement, in that depression, in that mindset or I could do something about changing and looking to please God now in my practice. May not have been able to do it earlier because of spiritual immaturity, but I could at least do something about it now. And uh, that's ultimately what kind of brought me out of that whole thing uh, because that's what was necessary. So that brings us to this uh, backside of your first page. The result is the Roman 7 lifestyle that most believers find themselves living over and over again. The things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. The things that I hate, those are the things that I do. Uh, What is the purpose of Romans 7 if not to bring people to the recognition of Paul in verses 20 through 25 of chapter 7? Let me read that for you. Um, Now, if I do not want to do, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin that lives in me. So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? Now, I'll be, well, let me read verse 25 and then I'll go back. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God as a new creature. That's what I'm enslaved to. But with my flesh, the law of sin. Being a new creature doesn't mean I can overcome what's here. Okay? Now, um, one of the things that I have uh, seen as a, as a pastor is th- there are certain doctrines in the Bible that we really like, and then there are other doctrines that we really don't want to talk about too much because, well, I don't know why, because. They don't tickle our ears, I guess is the best way to say it. And one of the things that we don't like is when someone preaches that really you all by yourself without Christ, you're a dirty, rotten scum of the earth sinner. No, I'm not. I'm a pretty good person. No, you really aren't. That's what his conclusion is here in Romans 7. Though as a new creature, a believer, I want to do what God wants me to do, I am incapable because of what's in me. Oh, wretched man that I am. We like to dress it up. We'll, we'll come up with rules. If you follow these rules, then you're a good Christian. 
if your hair is the right length, if you're wearing the right kind of clothes, so on and so on and so forth. Uh, we've kind of gotten away from uh, the dress code issue here a little bit. You want to you wanna know that I'm right? Wear a pair of shorts. <laughs> Someone will get upset about it. Uh, now, that's where they are in their walk, okay? Uh, but the, the reality is, is all of the rules in the world doesn't make you a non-wretched person. You are a wretched person because you were born in Adam. And you're saved. Yes, you've been given a new heart, a new spirit. The spirit of God lives in you. Hallelujah. But unless you learn to walk the way God wants you to walk, according to who you are by the power of the spirit, you're still a pretty wretched person. Okay? That's one of the doctrines that we don't like. We like hearing that Jesus loves you. And, he's, and the reality is he does. And that plan is full of suffering and failure <laughs> to, to get you to come to the end of yourself where you can finally walk with him. Because God's holy. You're wretched. Yeah, they don't mix. It's like oil and water. Okay? Okay, moving right along. Uh, I couldn't do it before. I still need Christ to continue the process as I needed him to be having begun. Done in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You know, we, we like to pick on the Galatians because they believed a, a bunch of bunk, but the reality is, is here we are 2,000 years later, and we all go through a period of what, I, uh, what I'd say is legalism, where we start looking at other people and seeing if they, if they measure up. And, and the reality is, is that's saying I can do it somehow on my own. Now, I, I couldn't get saved on my own, but now that I'm saved, I've got the Spirit of God in me, I've got the Word of God, I can do it, God. And God's trying to bring where, no, no, you really can't. You will continue to suffer defeat. You'll get discouraged until you learn how to walk with me. And that's not just a, I got up this morning, I did my devotions. We'll see as we go along here. In God's intended purpose to bring us and establish us in the infinite heights and depths of realm of truth, he allows for the initial excitement of the understood truth to wane into human effort and failure for the purpose of arriving at the principle of need. This moves us beyond infant enthusiasm to a place where we have to settle down on the truth revealed. Before growth occurs, we must be established in the knowledge of the truth, Hebrews 6.12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You think about Abraham, for example. Abraham is 75. He's called out of uh, where he lived among his family uh, and that kind of thing. And God says, I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know, and I'm going to give you children. If you number the stars of heaven, 
That'll be about how many I'm going to give you. It is 25 years later that Abraham finally gets the son of promise. Yes, it's 12 years later that he gets Ishmael. That's him doing it. That's the continuing in the flesh what was begun in the spirit, okay? And so Ishmael isn't the son of promise. He's not the blessed one. It is Isaac. We can talk about Isaac's character another day. God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So as far as we can tell, Isaac's there. He's okay, but he didn't always live it out. (laughs) And then on top of that, he goes another probably 12 to 16 years before God says, hey, that that son that I gave you, that son that you really love, I want you to go and offer him as a sacrifice. Kind of like, excuse me? (laughs) <laughs> you know, that, that would be the response most of us would come up with. And uh, the next morning, he gets up and goes, nice and early. And then he tells his servants, hey, my son and I, we're going up on the mountain, we're going to worship, and we're going to come back. We're, not I, we're. Because somewhere in uh, Abraham's mind, look, God said through Isaac, all of this. So now he wants me to kill him, which means he's got to raise him up from the dead. I don't know about you, but that's some faith. And according to James, he's justified by works. Justified in, in the eyes of who? In the world. The eyes of the world. He's already been justified for going on 40 years from God's perspective. Okay? Well, maybe it wasn't 40, but uh, Genesis 15. He believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. How long after chapter 12 was that? Probably a little while, but I don't know how long, okay? So uh, the principle of need brings us to the point where we understand this is a long, drawn-out process. Let's get to know it and keep on going. So in our need and desperation, we begin to grasp truth. In order for that truth to be established, it has to become a part of our uh, life, in our practice, and in so doing The Holy Spirit establishes us in truth. Now, I told you that I understood um, some of the truths of chapter 6 and 7 way back in the early 90s, okay? Uh, But it was 90 that I became a pastor, an associate pastor, went to my senior pastor. I was 30 years old. He had already been in the ministry for 37 years. I asked him to help me understand Romans 6, 7, and 8. And what he said was, I don't even understand Romans 6, 7, and 8. So I was getting some understanding of it, but to be honest with you, I didn't really grasp it probably for another 10 years. It took time. It took failure. Okay. And uh, I grasp it better today than I did 20 years ago, but it's been that long. (laughs) Okay, the next principle is the principle of time. It takes time and struggles to grow a strong, fruit-bearing child of God. 1 Peter 5.10, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Okay, 
those of you that have been married for a few years, how many years did it take before you kind of got over the hump? A few. <laughs> uh, Lynn and I were missionaries in Brazil in that next three-year period of time that God did a work in both of our lives where we stopped looking at what the other person needed to change and started submitting ourselves to change at that point. But again, at that point, I'm 19 years old in the Lord. We've been married for 12 to 15 years, blaming each other for, well, you know, if you wouldn't do that, I wouldn't do this, that kind of a thing. Um, whole, whole point being is it takes time. And, okay, it is through suffering that we are refined. And uh, that is very, very important because we like our lives of comfort, okay? Um, as we get older, one is we like comfort. And therefore, squatting down, keeping those muscles and the ligaments and tendons around the knee strong, no, 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 no. They weaken, but they weaken due to lack of use sometimes. Well, when there's a lack of use, there's comfort. So God brings us through the suffering. So that brings us to chapter 41. Three steps in reckoning. Everything we need to live the Christian life, freedom from the power of sin and self, power or grace to live in a way is in our Our Lord Jesus Christ given at the new birth. So everything that you need to live the life that God wants you to live 50 years after you're saved is given to you when you're saved. Now, why do I say 50? Whole point of time, because you're going to be learning about it as you go, and then it's going to be coming true in your life as you go. And you sit there and say, how come I didn't know this to reckon and to appropriate all that is given is not a problem of the truth found in the word of God. It reveals all that we need to know. If we do not know or desire to search out and find that which is necessary, the fault lies not seven, Luke 11, nine. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. When we're newly saved, what are we asking for? Well, we might be asking for our family to get saved and stuff like that. But very often, we're asking God, to, which college should we go to? Um, what job should I seek after? Oh, man, I really could use that money. That kind of a thing. That's not what he's talking about. Sure, ask, and it'll be given to you. But he's talking about our spiritual life, okay? God's word was written to bring us to know the living word. His spirit was given as the spirit of truth 
that would lead us into all truth. We are to study, meditate, and count on the truth of the word through the power of the same spirit. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, as you allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now let's go back to Romans 7 for just a moment. The things that I want to do, I want to live a godly, holy life. I don't do. The things that I hate, I'm a new creature. I don't like sin anymore. Now, as a believer in Christ, I recognize there's a part of us that likes it, and we identify ourselves with that part of us that likes it. I want you to understand, if you read through Romans chapter uh, 7, he's saying, no, as a new creature, I don't want to do that. I hate it. Why? Because he's associated himself with Christ. He's been baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. New creature. That's who I am now. We as Christians, yeah, we're a new creature, but there's still that part of me that wants to, and we sit there and say, yeah. Well, we say, yeah, because we're not believing what Paul believed. Okay? And we're not participating in the divine nature. Why? Because we're usually not in the word the way we ought to be. And therefore, since we're not participating in the divine nature, what's the result? We don't escape the corruption that's in the world through lusts. What lusts are we talking about? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The lusts that are in our Adamic nature, if you will, that law of sin. We don't escape it. And then we sit there and say, but see, yeah, I know I'm a new creature. Well, at least I think I am because I just failed so bad that I'm not sure if I am anymore. But uh, I'm a new creature, but there's this part of me. Well, understand what the part of you is. It's the law of sin in you. It's not you anymore. As long as you think it's you, you're probably going to give in. If you start understanding that you're a new creature and identifying with Christ and then putting into practice those things by the grace of God, then you start overcoming. But again, that's one of those things that you have to grow through. Okay, so that brings us down to uh, the bottom there, the written word, or the written word, written and administered by the Holy Spirit in God's way of revealing himself to us, But we cannot stop at the knowledge of the word. We must reckon it to be true and act by the Spirit accordingly. That brings us back to Romans 6, 11 through 13, which says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, when we're struggling with that part of us that still likes the sin stuff, we're not reckoning. We're not counting on the fact that I'm a new creature baptized into the death, burial, resurrection. I don't have to sin anymore. We're believing that we still have a choice. I can please God. I can please me. And boy, this one's really looking good, you know, that kind of thing. 
So that, that's what happens. <coughs> Excuse me. So likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be in, uh, indeed dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So it's telling us we, we, we already know stuff, now you gotta believe it, and then act upon the belief. Don't yield, yield. Not unto sin, but unto God. Okay, so that brings us to the next paragraph here. Failure to reckon may be due to wrong expectations. Knowing and appropriating the truths of identification is right, but liberty comes as the result of our intimate personal fellowship with the one who liberates through the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to this principle of liberation. The principle of liberation is in the liberator. Notice, how did we get saved? We came to the person who did what he did. How do we find freedom in the Christian life? We come to the person who does what he does. But you don't just come at the last minute. It is, you remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down and a guy comes up and says, hey, can you cast the demon out of my son? I asked your disciples to, and they can't do it. Why couldn't they do it? Well, we'll find out in a minute. So Jesus comes over, gets a little bit of information, casts the demon out, and the disciples come and say, hey, why couldn't we do it? They had just been on a a missions trip. They went out two by two. They come back. They're rejoicing that even the demons listen to us. We tell them in the name of Jesus, you know, get out of here. And, and they do. And Jesus sits there and says, hey guys, that's great. But what's more important is that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and then they try what they've always tried. In the name of Jesus, we would cast you out. And the demon wasn't listening. Well, Jesus did exactly the same thing. He says, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. When had Jesus prayed and fasted? That was part of his regular life. He was always getting up early in the morning, going up on a mountaintop, getting alone, spending time with God, spent time in intimate fellowship so that when the the event came, he was ready. The disciples weren't. Well, they had spent time with Jesus, you know, a little bit different. They were all hung up on the fact that in the name of Jesus, formula type stuff. Formula works, yeah. And they don't work all the time. Sometimes they do, but no. So that's the idea here. Uh, The principle of liberation is in the liberator. Three essential steps for a reckoning that counts. Doing one or two will not accomplish true liberty. Freedom from the Adamic life was accomplished positionally when we were saved. We were baptized into Christ into his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, well, I, I, I kind of ad-libbed there, and that's exactly what I have written here. We were identified with Christ's death to sin, resurrection to new life, and exaltation. 
The putting into the practice, this new life, comes through knowing and reckoning on the identification truths, abiding and resting in our liberator, and number three, depending on upon or walking in the Spirit. So that brings us to the next section. Know and reckon. This would be number one. Uh, going back to uh, Romans 6, three times he says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his, into his death? Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. That's the things we need to know. And what are we going to reckon? Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the initial freedom that we may experience after salvation or coming to know some of the identification truths is given so that we may know what lies ahead. But the Lord removes fluctuating experiences so that the eternal truths may be our basis to stand, our reliance on him for spiritual growth and not on our experience. Uh, this is one of those things, well, for example, when you're younger in the Lord, when you sin, what do you do? Very often we run from God. We want to run, hide, cover up, and shift the blame, right? As you recognize Romans 8.1, God's not angry when I sin. Now, if I'm going to be unrepentant, yeah, he may need to smack me upside the head as a loving father, disciplining me, chastising me. Look up the word chastise, and it's not talking about, oh, come on, I'm going to put you in a timeout for three minutes. Okay? He's talking about whipping, scourging. That's, that's kind of the definition of the word. So if you're going to be unrepentant, yeah, that's the kind of discipline that you'll get. But when we come to God agreeing with, now we're not just sitting there saying, hey God, I sinned. No, Lord, I, I did it again. And, and I, I know why I did it, because I haven't been spending time with you. And I was thinking about myself. And this was nothing but self, selfish, sinful activity. Thank you for the forgiveness that I have in Christ Jesus. Lord, work in me the things that need to be worked so that I can finally overcome this thing. You know, if we're going to be praying for something, that's what we ought to be praying for. Uh, but notice the difference there. We no longer have to be afraid of him. We can run to him because it's not based on our experience. How I did good, well, going back to the beginning of the book, it's not based on our condition, but on our position, okay? So uh, I may have a bad week or a bad month or couple of bad years, <laughs> but that, that I can still come running to God because it's based on eternal truths, who God is, what he's like, how he wants us to learn how to walk with him, not on how well I did this week. The second principle is abide and rest. He is the true vine. We're the branches. By means of our awareness of our union with him, we learn to abide or rest. The branch is dependent upon the vine for all of its life-giving sustenance. So as we abide or rest in him, 
we get everything that we need to live the way God wants us to live. Okay? And then depend and walk. Walking in dependence upon the Holy Spirit brings the liberating principle to full effect. He teaches us the identification truths as we study the Word. As we reckon on those truths taught, he applies the crucifixion of the cross to the old man and ministers life, the life of Christ to the new man. When we walk in the Spirit, we are made free from the lust of the flesh or the law of sin and death. Galatians 5, 16. <coughs> Excuse me. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This is and must all be done for God's glory or the glory of God and not for selfish reasons. You know, sometimes we want what God is offering us so that we can do it right, so that we'll look good either to God or to others. That's not good. It is, Lord, you've said I need to walk this way. And if you don't do what's necessary in my life, we know how that works out, Romans chapter 7. Okay? I desire that you're going to be glorified in my life, so teach me. I submit myself to you. Use the words that work for you, but look to God for the change that's necessary so that you can uh, actually walk in dependence upon him. So God's purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ and that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 1 Peter 4, 11, If anyone speaks, this is the use of spiritual gifts of verses 10 and 11, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone serves or ministers, let him do it as, uh, as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, you all remember the story that uh, Jacob, he's left Laban. Laban's chased after him. They worked out uh, things, kind of, where you stay on your side of the fence, I'll stay on mine, and uh, if any of us break this covenant, may God chop us into little pieces. Uh, that's basically what he said there. And you see boyfriends and girlfriends with the half a heart, with that little thing on there, you know. Oh, you know, you're, maybe, you know all that kind of stuff. And kind of like, yeah, if you understood where that came from, you wouldn't have it on the little heart there. <laughs> but uh, he goes on a little bit further, and he knows that uh, Esau is coming up the road. And Esau's bringing 400 of his best buddies to meet Jacob. Now, what, what happened the last time Jacob was in town with Esau? He stole the blessing. Now, Esau really didn't want all the good stuff of the blessing anyway, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Esau's all upset, threatens to kill him. His mother says, hey, Dad, we need to send him up there so he can find a wife and get out of town because Esau's going to kill him, uh, that kind of a thing. So here, here he is coming back. Esau's coming to meet him. So he sends forth parties with all kinds of gifts and uh, to hopefully soften his heart. 
And the night before he's going to meet Esau, he meets with God. And there's a wrestling match going on. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of wrestling with God, I'm thinking he can probably win. Know what I mean? And yet, he allows Jacob to at least get the better of him so that Jacob will ask for a blessing. And God says, okay, from now on, you're going to be called Israel, prince with God. Not, uh, not with, because you wrestled with God and, and prevailed, okay? And at the same time, he won't let go because he wants to know God's name. And he goes, nah, that's not part of this deal at the moment. So he touches him somewhere back here in the hip. And from then on, Jacob is going to be walking with a limp and they're not going to eat that part of the cow and all that kind of stuff. But if you read the rest of the book of Genesis, Jacob is called Jacob an awful lot in the next few chapters. And then he starts getting called Israel. And once in a while, Jacob, sometimes he's called Jacob because that's his name. Sometimes he's called Jacob because what he's thinking about and what he's doing at that time is fleshly. He's worried, he's fearful, that kind of a thing. And then there are times when he resigns himself to, okay, God's going to do what God's going to do, and I'm going to trust him. And that's when he's called Israel. Um, you might remember when the boys finally came back with some corn from Egypt. Uh, they told them what had happened. Levi had been left behind. Oy vey, you had already got one son killed. Now another one is left. And, and you want me to let you take Benjamin? And Jacob said, no way, no way Jose. Jose was their Mexican cousin. Um, and, uh, you know, a month or so passes. They're getting lo lower and lower on food. And uh, Reuben comes with the great idea of, you know, I'll bring them. And if I don't bring them back, you can kill my kids. Like every grandfather wants to kill his grandchildren. I mean, <laughs> um, and, and then finally Judah comes to him and says, look, let me take them. And I'll take the responsibility if anything happens. It'll be on me. Not that you want to put it on your son, but these sons had already done something to Joseph. Jacob knows this. But Jacob finally says, okay, Lord, we'll do it because this is apparently the only way we're going to get food. And it says, in Israel, let him go. That's, what's that? Yeah, because he's walking in faith at that point. Now, mind you, he's been brought to a point where he doesn't really have a choice, but that's what God does. He brings us to a point where, look, you can't do it. Trust me. And so that's what this next paragraph here, Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, a name change in the rest of the story of him becoming Israel. Okay, so it is through the principle of strength out of weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 uh, and verse 9, it says, And lest I should be uh, exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. In other words, to prevent me from getting proud, God did something to keep me humble. 
And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And we are developed in the, not I, but Christ in me, life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of, I know it says in, but that's wrong, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's basically the principle of strength out of weakness. When we come to a point where we recognize, I've tried, I've tried everything, I, I can't do it. You're right where God wants you. Because then as you trust in the eternal principles, the truths of identification, 